This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Welcome. If I haven't met you officially, I probably should have said something up there uh, at the deacon prayer time. But my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's just a joy to have you with us here today. We are in a new series that we're calling The Good Life. Uh, It is a study on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, today what we're going to be talking about specifically is taste and see Christianity. So we're going to look at Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. This is in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We're still brand new. It's the third message in the series. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one uh, under the seat in front of you. You can grab that and turn to page 472. And what I'm going to do if you're new to church or new to preaching or uh, any of that kind of stuff, I'm going to read those verses in just a minute. And then I'm going to talk about those verses and what they mean. And then I'm going to talk about how we can apply those verses to our lives. So if you open up the Bible, you'll be able to track along a lot better. Or if you have the Bible on the phone, open your device um, there. I also wanted to let you know uh, that we are this week beginning a, uh, a pilot podcast uh, that'll be new. So we have a sermon podcast already, but we're going to be beginning a uh, pilot podcast. We've done one that we didn't distribute, uh, but uh, to, to see if, if it was worth distributing, you'll be the judge of that, I guess. Uh, but we're going to do that this week, and there's numbers of goals to it. It's a conversation. It's not a sermon. Uh, but one of the goals is that I could uh, follow up an application on the sermons. And so like today, I have a big chunk of my message that I edited at about 30 minutes before the service and cut it out. I'm going to talk about it on the podcast, uh, so, uh, which may, may not be that much of a teaser to get you to listen. But, uh, but it does mean we'll get out of here earlier for lunch, so there's a positive. Um, so anyway, I, I want to let you know about that. And if you have questions at any point about the sermon, you can text questions to this number. So if you do pull out your phone, if you would just text this number and not like a whole, a whole lot of people or check Facebook, it's risky to tell people to open their phones during the sermon, I know. Uh, this number will be in your bulletin as well. If you have a question about the sermon, uh, because that'll be part of the context of the, of the podcast, we'll also talk about stuff coming up in the life of the church. Um, we'll comment on some cultural issues. Various things will happen, but a lot of it will be a, how do we apply what we learned or how does it touch our lives in various ways. And um, so if you text in a question, we'll talk about it. It'll come out this week. We'll, if you subscribe to the Sermon Podcast, you'll get it automatically. That's what I'd recommend. Subscribe to the Sermon Podcast. You don't have to listen to any of them, but if you're on vacation, you can listen to that one, or if you're sick or whatever, you can't make it. So that's, uh, I want to let you know about that. Also, before we jump in, uh, we have a couple books out at the Resource Center on the Sermon on the Mount that will help you if you would like to look at those and get those. Um, uh, one is by Daniel Doriani. It is called The Sermon on the Mount, The Character of a Disciple. So we have that book right outside across from the cafe on a shelf, on a resource shelf. You can buy that. It'll help you if you read during the week. It'll you track along with The Sermon on the Mount and, and uh, make some application. This is a very helpful one. The other is by one of my favorite authors, Sinclair Ferguson. If his name is on the cover, I would buy it and read it. I've never read anything by him that wasn't helpful. The Sermon on the Mount, Kingdom Life in a Fallen World. And uh, so that'll be a helpful resource for you as well. These are books that go kind of verse by verse and explain 
uh, the Sermon on the Mount to us. Okay, a little introduction and then we'll read the text. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' first teaching section in the Gospel of Matthew. So he comes uh, announcing that the kingdom of God has arrived. He says, repent for the kingdom is here. He is the king and he brings the kingdom. The kingdom uh, of God is not a geographical area. It's not a nation state. He's saying it's wherever the rule and reign and realm of the king is experienced, those who believe and follow him. And so he comes announcing the kingdom, and then he comes demonstrating the kingdom. Chapter 4 before this says that he teaches, he proclaims the good news of the kingdom, he heals sick people, he expels demons from people who are oppressed and inhabited by darkness, and in doing so, he is announcing that the king is on the move, the king is ruling and reigning in Jesus. And then he begins to teach. And the first thing he teaches are these beatitudes. There are eight of them or nine of them, depending on how you break them up. And we looked at them last week. A beatitude is a blessing. And so he starts with saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the mourn, those who mourn. And he's describing what the blessed life is like. He's describing a countercultural kingdom. His kingdom is upside down from the values of our world. And he's communicating that People who experience the king in these situations are living a kingdom life. Those who see their need for God, that's the first one, blessed the poor in spirit. The person who sees their need for God and comes to Christ is the blessed person. And we're calling this the good life because we're saying regardless of the cultural context we live in, the good life is knowing Christ and living the life that he has designed for us to live regardless of our circumstances. Because he says people are blessed who are even walking through difficult times if they know him and are experiencing his kingdom. So he closes the, the, the blessing statements with blessed are those, uh, blessed are you when you are persecuted. He closed by saying that his followers will be persecuted, there will be difficulty. And then he says this in verse 13. Uh, so we'll start in verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a lamp and put it, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. So, Jesus uh, here is addressing the disciples after the Beatitudes. He has said, you're blessed if you live, if, live this way, if God is at work in your life in this way. Then he says, you're going to be persecuted. Uh, you're going to be resisted. Not everybody's going to be crazy about following Christ. And so the temptation there, as you can imagine, if you've been told that to follow me is to live a countercultural lifestyle, the temptation is, is what? Well, the temptation with a countercultural lifestyle is an isolated lifestyle. If people aren't going to understand me, if people may even reject me, if some might even persecute me, then is the best thing to do just sort of separate? Should we just separate ourselves and huddle together as believers in a place of safety? And Jesus 
answers this way with two metaphors. He uses two examples, these comparisons. He says, you are salt and you are light. You are salt and you are light is what he says to them. Now, there's many interpretations about what these comparisons mean. Scholars have produced, uh, from what I've read, at least 11 interpretations of what the idea of salt and the comparison of a Christian to salt actually means. But regardless of what the sort of nuanced explanations of salt and light actually are, they are descriptors of kingdom living. And what is extremely clear from both of them is that Jesus Jesus is telling the disciples, you cannot separate yourself from the world. You cannot isolate yourself from the culture. That is what is extremely clear from both of them. You are part of God's plan to bring redemption to the world. That's what he's actually communicating to them. In chapter 4, he calls his first disciples, the chapter before, verse 18, he's walking by the Sea of Galilee. He sees a couple brothers, Simon and, and Andrew. They're fishermen. He calls them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. He, he goes on and he calls a couple of other brothers, James and John. And so now he has this small group of disciples. The Sermon on the Mount is to them. The crowds are listening, but it's to them. So he's got, I don't know, a handful, a few folks here he's called at this point. He's got a few disciples, this kind of ragtag group of newly assembled people. They are amateur disciples, and this is what he's telling them. You're going to be the light of the world. Now, we just read this, and we're familiar with it, but it's astounding that a handful of disciples sitting before Jesus freshly, just the chapter before, called to follow him, and he sits them down, and he says, look, here's what life's going to be like for you now. (laughs) It's going to be completely countercultural. And by your countercultural life, you're going to be bearers of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And you're going to light the world, not Judea, not Israel, the world. The whole world will be touched by your lives as kingdom citizens. That's what he tells them, that they are part of Christ's mission to extend his reign, to spread throughout the world. And he says from the very beginning that the mission of the gospel, that gospel influence is part of your very identity. This is what he says to a follower of Christ. You are salt. You are light. This is an indicative, which is a statement of fact. It's not an imperative, which is a command. It's a statement of fact, not a command. You do, he doesn't say try to be light. He doesn't say brighten up. He doesn't say seek to be salty. He says, you are light. You are salt. God's mission is stamped. Listen, if you are here as a believer, God's mission is stamped on your very core identity. You cannot escape it. Following Jesus, to follow Jesus is to be a part of his mission. You don't sign up with Jesus as Lord and later sign up for the mission. They happen at once. To follow Jesus is to be salt and light in the world. This is what he says to them. You are united with Christ. And because we're united with Christ, we are born again as new creations for influence, to shine the good news, to represent. You are, you are saved to represent. You are created to affect others, created in Christ. You don't have to join the mission. You just need to be who you are in Christ by his grace. 
empowered by his spirit. You are the salt of the earth. Let's look at salt, let's look at light, and then I'll make an application. You are the salt of the earth. In Jesus' day, salt had multiple usages. Thus, at least 11 scholarly opinions about what this means, that you are the salt of the earth. So, for instance, common ideas are that salt was used as a preservative. That's true. Can you imagine life before refrigeration? Everything you have would spoil. So you would put salt on meat, and it would sort of delay the decaying process. Salt was used as a healing agent. Uh, Salt was used in sacrifices. Salt was used in making covenants, which are agreements. But its most common use back then is its most common use today. So I'm going to go with what's most common. I think that's safest. And that is salt is a seasoning. Salt enhances food. Way back in the book of Job, there is a verse Now, he's not specifically talking about this salt and light metaphor, but there's a verse back in Job, Job 6.6, where Job says, can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? So he's saying that food is tasteless without the seasoning of salt. Salt is described as a seasoning. So believers in Jesus are to live this sort of countercultural life, like the Beatitudes, empowered by Christ with flavor, with zest, As salt, we introduce the flavor of the kingdom of God. We're to introduce it to individuals, to families, to groups, even to organizations and institutions in which we serve. God places Christians in organizations and institutions, and when he does, it's a mercy and a grace to to that institution uh, or that organization because Christians are placed there to add the flavoring, to introduce the person and the work of Christ by their very lives by their very lives of doing the mundane sort of things in life. Now, I'm going to go with seasoning as primarily what this means. But even even if one of the other ones is what Jesus had in mind as well, preservative, healing, whatever it might be, uh, here is something that all of those bear in common. Salt must come in contact with the substance that it's intended to affect. That's true for all of them. And that answers the question when Jesus says, you will be persecuted, and they're thinking, let's get in a holy huddle. He says, no, you're, you're salt, and you must come in contact with what you are seeking to affect. If you're going to preserve meat, the salt must touch the meat. If you're going to heal a wound, the salt must be poured in the wound. And if you are going to season a meal... The salt must touch the food. You don't serve a meal with all the vegetables and the meat and whatever else on the plate and then just like a pile of salt in a bowl next to it. It must touch for it to have any effect. And so Jesus is saying the kingdom mission of extending the rule and reign of Christ by announcing the good news to people means you must be in contact with them. Just as the salt must be mixed together with the vegetables, so Christians must be in the mix. We must touch what we seek to change by God's grace. Now, he immediately raises a risk. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? He immediately says it's possible to lose this saltiness. As a compound, salt 
uh, can't actually lose its saltiness. However, salt can lose its effect by being diluted. Uh, One commentator uses the example of soup, and he says, let's say you have soup that has meat and vegetables and broth and, uh, you know, perhaps uh, some kind of spices added to it, and it's salted perfectly to taste. Now, that's a meal that has to have salt. I mean, can't ima- I can't have you, ever, have you ever tasted a bland soup? You want to put in the right amount of salt so that it has a good flavor to it. So he said, imagine you have a pint of soup that is well mixed and has appropriate amount of salt in it just right. And then imagine you take that pint of soup and you mix it with four gallons of hot water. What happens to the salt? It's still there. It just completely lost its taste. Why? Because it's been diluted. And when he talks about salt losing its saltiness here, what he's saying is that you can be salt and yet have little effect. Why? Well, it could be because you have been diluted. The salt has lost its value of saltiness. And so it is with the follower of Christ. We can dilute our saltiness when we blend in with the surrounding culture. When we blend in and are unnoticeable and, and the taste of our lives, the taste of the experience of Christ in our lives is, is lost because we're, not, we're no different. Saltiness has to do with distinctiveness. Do you get that? What, when salt is in a meal, it's something that is distinct that brings flavor. When it loses its distinctiveness and it's diluted, it's no longer any good. Jesus said it's, it's, like, uh, it's no longer good, good for anything. It's to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It's not valued at that point. So whatever causes us to lose our distinctiveness, causes, that, that's losing our saltiness. That's losing our effectiveness as a witness I want to I present to you the idea that we lose our saltiness when we drift from the blessed life. When Jesus says, you know, blessed are those who see their need for God, the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are mourning over their sin and the grievous um, brokenness in our culture. When we, don't, when we mourn over that, God comforts us with the gospel and forgiveness. When we don't mourn over that and we just blend in with an uncaring heart, then we lose our saltiness. Blessed are the meek. When we are arrogant, we have lost our saltiness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When we choose instead to hunger and thirst uh, for the flesh, we lose our saltiness. Blessed are the merciful. When we are giving other people exacting justice but wanting mercy for ourselves, we've lost our flavor at that point. You can walk through the Beatitudes and say, the farther we drift from that, the less salty we will be in the place God has placed us. When we live as those around us who are confident in our morality, I'm a pretty good person, that's not salty. Salty is, I am in desperate need of God, and God answered my need in the gospel. When we're self-righteous in our attitudes for others, we've lost our saltiness. When we are grasping for power and recognition, When we are living for the affirmation and the approval of others, we are no different than our culture. When we are living for material things, when we find our identity not in Christ and his kingdom, but when we find our identity in what we own and what we do and what our titles are and what we drive and where we live and how we dress, when it's all that kind of stuff, then we're no longer salty 
because that's what everybody does apart from Jesus Christ. When we, live, uh, for, uh, when we live being critical of other people, when we grumble and complain, when we sort of shave the truth off the situation so that we can close the deal or so that our boss doesn't know, that's expected in many places. That's not salty. When we're enslaved to lust, to greed, to gluttony, when we spend all our free time staring at a phone screen rather than in a- interacting with the people around us, that's, it takes no, no skill to, to fall into that kind of a life where we're just checked out. When we live for satisfaction in the here and now rather than living for ultimate satisfaction in the age to come, that's how Jesus describes the kingdom. It's already here, and yet it's not here in its fullness. And so we long for that day. When we lose our hope, there's no saltiness. If, if we live as, this, as if this is all there is, then we have lost our saltiness at that moment. Jesus describes kingdom life through the Beatitudes, and then he says, you're the salt of the earth. What's he saying? I'm going to make you this way. I'm going to create you to live this way, and you're going to be distinct from the culture, the salt of the earth. God has given us a distinct flavor and put us in the midst of all kinds of ingredients. Think about all the ingredients around us. So so often we look at the ingredients around us and we say, I want to get away from that. Jesus says, come in contact with that, and you will, you will display, you will share the flavor of Christ in that context. What are the ingredients around us? They're our extended families, our neighborhood, our neighbors, our workplace. He's saying when you live out the kingdom values in union with Christ, when you live out the new life that he has given you in the place that he has placed you, you will be a savory ingredient You will flavor the environment. Your distinctiveness will be your gospel influence to touch the people and the places you come in contact with. So resist the temptation to just blend in. So often we want to just blend in. But when we do, we lose our saltiness and we lose the mission. This is the mission. This is the plan. The plan is Jesus saying, I made you salty. Now get out there and be in contact and let the flavor of Christ flow through your life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, said this. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message though it may hate it at first. It's in our distinctiveness that we're attractional. Now, I want to be very clear here. It's when we're distinctive in the way Jesus wants us to be distinctive. Read verses 3 through 11. That's distinctiveness. It's not being self-righteous, fundamentalist, judging everybody else. Uh, You know, it doesn't mean that we have to, uh, you know, look and act totally like we're, I don't know, from the 1950s or something, uh, like the church is, is, is an episode of Leave it to Beaver. That is not what he means. He means living out these values. When the church embraces these values in a culture, we'll be distinct. And that's what's, that's what's attractive to people who are leaning in. That's what will get us persecuted for people that are leaning out. Light. Jesus also says, you are the light of the world. Because of God's grace to us and his Holy Spirit, we are light. He says, you're the light of the world, verse 14, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Have you ever been driving somewhere, maybe on a road trip or something, and it's dark, and you can see in the distance a hill that's, that has, you know, houses, street signs, buildings, whatever it could be, just lit up. You see dots on a hill. That's what he's talking about. It would have been much more real in Jesus' day because there were no, you know, uh, lights like these. There was only the natural light of the stars and moon at night. And so things were pitch, it was pitch black. If you didn't have a candle or a fire or something, you were in pitch black. So a city set on a hill would even be a more distinct comparison in his day than it would be in ours because we have a wash of city light most places we go. But if you could imagine that, that's what he said. He said, here's what I've made you to be. You are to be lit and elevated in the sense that people notice. Now, Jesus says he is the light of the world, but the Bible says that in, by faith, we're in union with Christ. We're joined to Christ. So Jesus says in John, I am the light of the world. Jesus says here, you are the light of the world. It's both because we're in Christ. So we are to be the light of the world joined to him. He makes us visible, not hidden. Secondly, he says, people don't light a lamp, verse 15, and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. What's he talking about? Well, a light in Jesus' day in a home would have been kind of a bowl or like a boat-like figure I've seen sometimes. I think of a gravy boat, but that's just me. Uh, But like a little boat, you know, and it would be filled with oil. And a wick would be put in it, the wick would be lit, and the, the oil would light up. And then this lamp, would, this little lamp, this bowl of oil, would be placed on a stand so that it could give light to the whole house. That's what he's saying. You don't light that little lamp and then put a basket over it. But you put it up on its stand so that it can share its light with the house. In the same way, he says, let your light shine before others. So what is the light that we're supposed to shine? Well, he answers that. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He's saying the light that should shine from you are good works. Jesus changes us so that we increasingly love and serve others in our lives. And as that happens, his light is shining through us to other people. The result is that people are ultimately drawn to God, and some will actually turn and worship God themselves. They're not drawn to us as amazing people. They're drawn to the amazing Savior. He says, they will see your works, and they will give glory to your Father who who is in heaven. Your good works. We used to sing growing up. I'm not in children's ministry. It's been a lot of years, so I don't know if we still still sing this. But when I was growing up, we sang, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. That's a basket. No, I'm going to let it shine. Well, how do we let this little light of mine shine? He says, we let it shine through Christ who's forming us as kingdom people with good works. Our faith is in Christ is made visible through good works. Now, when I start talking like this, some of us, because we're good gospel people um, in, in, the, in the heritage even of Reformed theology, we sort of get nervous about talking about too much good works. And somebody better say something quick. Somebody better say something because the preacher's going to start with some works righteousness here real fast. 
Um, and that's really a misunderstanding. I, I, I want to be clear here. We are not saved by our good works. If you're not a Christian and you're new here, I, Jesus is not saying that if you do good works, that that will make you right with him. We are made right with him by his death and his resurrection. It's his grace. We're not saved by our good works, but the Bible does say we are saved for good works. Th- these are, this is very different. Being saved by works and being saved for works are two different things. We're saved by grace through faith, and we're saved for good works. That's what the Lord wants us to do. So in Ephesians 2, this is really spelled out in Ephesians 2, 8. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. In this passage, this is, this is we're familiar with this first part. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Don't you love that? We love that so much we named our church after that, Grace, and we inscribed it in the stone at the front door when you come in. So none of us come in here based on our good works. We all come in here and say it's only by Christ's grace, grace, dying for our sins and being raised that gives us new life, and we receive him by faith. So we are saved. What does it say? By grace, not by our works. We are saved through faith. Then what does he go on to say after that? So after you become a Christian by faith, it's a total gift. Once you turn from sin and believe in Christ, total gift. Then it says, for we are his workmanship created, created anew, in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he's saying that you're saved by grace. These people, these disciples aren't sitting with Jesus based on their works. They were out fishing. What did they do to earn a relationship with God? They're fishing. God comes into their world and says, follow me. That's grace. Wasn't looking for him, was doing my own thing, chasing my own world, being my own person, and God called me into his kingdom and made me a new person by grace. That's grace. Then he says, come with me and let's talk about the kingdom, sit down. They've already come in by grace. They're already welcomed by grace. It's all because of Jesus and not them. And then he says, I'm going to make you to live this way, the good life, the the beatitudes, and you're going to be light in the world. How? Your good works now, empowered by me, the good works you're going to do now are going to draw people to Christ. We're saved by grace, but we are saved for good works so that the character of Jesus comes through. And those attitudes affect other people. They see Christ as we love them. They see Christ as we are patient with them. We see Christ, they see Christ as we forgive them. As we show mercy to other people as Christ has shown mercy to us. As we befriend other people with kindness. As we serve people with no strings attached, as we defend marginalized people in the culture, as we uh, befriend and reach out to those who are outcasts, as we, res- as we speak re- respectfully of other people, even those, most importantly, those with whom we differ. As we speak respectfully of other people who are, everyone bears God's image, is created in his image. We, we get that and we treat people Life is sacred, and we treat them, and their reputations as sacred. These are the good works that shine Christ into our world and open a door to share the gospel. This is God's plan for permeating darkness. His, his plan for permeating darkness is to grab some very unimpressive people, to save them by grace, didn't see that coming, save them by grace, bring them into his kingdom, change them, get, call them to good works, and say, this is how we permeate the world of darkness. Here's a big old fat commentary on the book of Matthew. 
Um, it's written by a guy named Doug O'Donnell, uh, and it's just called Matthew. So it's, it's a book I've used, one of the books I've used to study. He's got a section on the Sermon on the Mount. And, I, and this is rare in a commentary for a commentator, a scholar, to share this kind of a personal story. Usually they're not overly personal, but this is what he writes. Certainly people about this, about light and salt. Certainly people must know the content of the gospel in order to believe the gospel, but most people are not attracted to the gospel purely by hearing it, but so often by seeing the good deeds that spring from it. Let me put this to the test. How were you converted? Was it through encountering a street evangelist or through a personal relationship with a Christian? Most of us were converted to Christ due to a relationship with a Christian, a co-worker, a parent, an uncle, a friend. We were converted in part because we saw the Christian faith in action before we believed it. That is certainly part of my testimony. I grew up, this is important, hearing some of the truths of Christianity, but it wasn't until I saw them lived out that I wanted to believe and that I desired to glorify God with my life. It was the summer of 1990. I had just graduated from high school, and I was selected to play basketball at the Prairie State Games, which is kind of like an Olympics for Illinois. Most of the guys on the team were typical guys. We swore a lot. We talked disrespectfully and immorally about girls. And as superstar athletes, we were full of ourselves. But one guy on the team was noticeably different. His name was Mark Davidson. Mark never swore on or off the court. Mark only talked and acted respectfully toward girls. He treated everyone on the team, even the water boy, with dignity and kindness. This affects me because of the, the impact of this story. <clears throat> He was humble, even though he was the best player on the team. In fact, he was voted the best player in the state of Illinois. Mark was a Christian. I knew this by the Bible he kept next to his dorm room bed and from the openness of his conversations, but also, and most importantly, by his godly behavior and good works. I became a Christian about a year and a half after tasting the salt and seeing the light of Mark Davidson. His behavior made it clear to me as it settled during those months upon my conscience what it meant to follow Jesus. Let's make some application. Here's the one sole point of application. There'll be a secondary one on a podcast. But here's the sole point. I want to encourage you to ask God for a vision of kingdom influence. Most everyone in this room has potential of their life affecting many folks. We undersell our potential to, by grace, walk out faithfully in the mundane daily rhythms of life and make a difference in ways that you cannot imagine. And the reason I read this story, I have stories from my own life I could have told, but the reason I read this story is because I want you to think about this one guy and what he did. 
It wasn't amazing. I didn't hear anything about a mic, a social media platform. I didn't hear any of that. The story I read to you was about a guy who's in an environment of the world. It's all about pride. It's all about swagger. And he's showing dignity to the water boy. That's not a heroic act necessarily. He treated a water boy with dignity. He spoke respectfully to women. And more importantly, he spoke respectfully behind them, behind their backs when the athletes were cutting them up like objects to be evaluated. And it is not just locker room talk. It is speaking about someone created in the image of God and treating them like something to be consumed. And when that conversation was going on, he was speaking respectfully of women. 30 years before the Me Too movement, our cultural moment, which is restoring the understanding of the dignity of women in so many ways, he was countercultural by treating women with respect. He was the best player in the state, and he was humble. He didn't, uh, he didn't hide his Bible, but he also didn't beat people over the head with it. And people were watching. People were watching. Doug O'Donnell was watching. And Doug O'Donnell noticed something, that in a group of people who were proud and full of themselves, who were treating girls like objects, who had a stature that we're better than some other people. He noticed humility and a countercultural life. He knew something of the gospel, but he did not get it until he saw this guy. And he said, quote, His behavior made it clear to me as it settled during those months on my conscience what it meant to follow Jesus. This is, seems like a very small deal, but here's what happened. This guy gets converted. He goes to college. He goes to seminary. He becomes a scholar of the scripture. He writes a book, he's written many, but he writes a book on Matthew in the Preaching the Word series. Preachers all over the world, in every continent, get this, get this book. We, during the week, are studying the scripture, don't understand some of it. We open it up and get a scholar's take on Greek language, on culture, on background of what do things mean because he's given himself to studying this, that informs us and we declare it to people. And you today are being influenced by a kid on a basketball court in 1990 who lived a life that led someone to Christ as he spoke the gospel to him, who raised up a leader who used his skill and ability to train, to equip leaders who would then preach the gospel to other people who would hear that. And humanly speaking, this guy had an influence on thousands, millions of people. There's people all over the world today that are hearing a sermon on Matthew that learned something from Doug O'Donnell who came to Christ because of the example of someone who didn't have a mic, who didn't do amazing things. He just lived humbly with Jesus as his Lord. He just respected women. He just cared for people who were lower on the social ladder and treated them as equals, maybe even preferring them. I share this example because it shows the example. You don't know who is watching you. You don't know what your customer is thinking. 
You don't know what a client observes and what is going on in their life. You don't know what your neighbors are seeing at any given moment. You don't know how kingdom living will touch someone else's life and through them will touch someone else and someone else and someone else. We all have people like that in our lives Here's the beauty of the example of this basketball player named Mark. He didn't put a basket over his lamp. But here's what I want you to get. Jesus didn't put a basket over his lamp either. He let this light shine, in this instance, throughout the world. Throughout the world. A kid who served Jesus in small ways and ultimately touched the world. This is the mission. God's not working through a few superstars He's shining every day in the classroom, in the boardroom, in the dorm room, in the family room. He's shining on the court and in the park and in the office and in the store. He's shining at the family reunion and in the coffee shop and on the phone and through social media and a thousand other ways. Which is why St. Clair Ferguson writes, Like salt, Christians may seem small and insignificant, powerless in a power-mad society, yet they have the ability to influence every segment of it and permeate the whole. That's what salt does. It permeates the whole. That's what light does. It shines in the darkness. And the Lord uses that. What if I failed? Of course you failed. Of course I failed. What if I haven't been a good witness? What if I haven't walked out the Sermon on the Mount? What if I haven't looked to Christ? Well, here's here's the deal. When we fail to love others, when we sin against them, here's what we do. We ask forgiveness. We acknowledge that we're sinners. We acknowledge our failure. We thank them for their patience, and we ask forgiveness. And in so doing, we are being meek and countercultural. And it's, it's oftentimes in, in it, acknowledging our failure and weakness and common humanity that a person can come near to the gospel, not because we're great, but because we acknowledged where we failed. So it, it's not just a flawless witness. Nobody's got that but Jesus. It's not just a flawless witness. It's an honest witness. Even in our failures, grace can shine for others to see God. And when we acknowledge our sin, it opens a door to the Savior because Jesus said, I came for sinners, not the righteous. I didn't come for well people. I came for the sick. That's what Jesus says. So that opens the door to be good news. Where has God placed you to be salt and light? He isn't going to cover your lamp. So you don't either. Let him shine through. What does that mean for you? Well, it means for most of us just living faithfully in the small things and the mundane things of life, but asking God for a vision that those things count not only for his glory, not only for the common good, but they count evangelistically as well because they open a door for us to speak to about the God who has changed us. Let's ask God for a kingdom vision. I think that's the biggest problem. I I think the biggest problem is not that folks in this room aren't godly. I think the biggest problem is that we have very little vision that any of it matters. But when we get a grip on what it means to be salt and what it means to be light, it expands our vision. A little salt flavors a whole meal. A little light brightens a whole room. And one life trusting Christ, empowered by the Spirit, can turn many to glorify our Father in heaven. Many lives even after we're gone. Let's pray.
You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.